Welcome everybody to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, we'll be recapping both Only Murders in the Building and Nine Perfect Strangers. I'm here with Sona once again. Hi. And uh, we will be recapping both of the shows, both available on Hulu currently. And we recommend both of them to different extents. We'll get into that as we go forward. Last week, if you have if you missed it, in last week's episode, we actually recapped the first three episodes of Only Murders in the Building. So please catch up with those if you, if you want to. And uh, But we didn't have a chance. We're trying to shoehorn that whole conversation to such a short period of time. Did not get a chance to uh, get into the titles of those episodes to see if there's anything thematically interesting there. We're going to start off with Only Murders in the Building. But if you're here to check out only the Nine Perfect Strangers recap, just check the show notes. There'll be a timestamp. I will guess I'm going to replace this number here with whatever the number it turns out to be, but probably about 35 minutes into this episode, you can transition over to there, but check the show notes for a more specific time. So only murders in the building. First episode is called true crime. And uh, that's pretty straightforward, right? You know, they're mm-hmm. both fans of this true crime uh, podcast. And of course, like I mentioned in that previous conversation, true crime is a very big a very popular genre within podcasting. And I guess within, hey, within TV, within movies, within definitely Netflix documentaries, right? So true crime is a big genre in general, maybe more now more so than ever. I feel like what used to only be like Dateline NBC specials is now kind of pervaded all of culture, right? And that's really like the genre of the the podcast they listen to. And there is a true crime in the episode. Excellent point. Yes, of course. And then of course, this is a true crime that happens to them. Exactly. Absolutely. And that leads us to episode number two, which is called Who is Tim Kono? Very straightforward. Tim Kono is the person who gets killed <laughs> or <laughs> who dies. We're still not actually 100% certain as to whether they were murdered or not. Right. The police seem to think it's a suicide. So um, the person who died in episode one under some mysterious circumstances is called Tim Kono. And the episode is called Who is Tim Kono? And I don't think we really find out who Tim Kono is there, but I guess it is the question that the characters are asking. Right. Because they try and also go to that memorial service to see what they can find out. And they don't find out much of anything except that everyone hates Tim Kono. <laughs> right. But their, their goal is to find out more. Exactly. Then our third episode, the title itself is called How Well Do You Know Your Neighbors? And of course, this is a theme of the show itself, right? It's not only is a kind of a philosophical question to ask. We find out that all of the characters in the show have aspects of their past that they're hiding from each other. There's a very New York City thing going on here about neighbors, right? Because we so many of us live in apartments and it's funny how you can live right next door to someone and literally not see them for years at a time and have no idea what their story is. And, you know, other neighbors you might run into and learn something really important and significant about them just in the time you're waiting for the elevator. For example, I have lived in this building for 11 years and only during COVID lockdown have I become very close with one of my neighbors because we decided to go get outside time together. We started going on a weekly walk and now I know all about her life, but it took 11 years for us to have the opportunity to actually talk to each other. So I feel like it's a very city living type of thing to be in such close proximity to someone, but know absolutely nothing about them. As you know, I live in the suburbs. I lived in apartments for many years, <laughs> decades. I keep forgetting how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> But what's interesting about that is I remember living in my apartment when we had the blackouts and Mm -hmm. also when Hurricane Sandy hit. And it was one of these situations where you kind of just smile and wave at your neighbors, but then, you know, really got to know them more uh, intimately when all of a sudden, like the buildings blacked out and we're all pooling the food we have and uh, burning candles in the hallway and hanging out together, builds friendships kind of out of happenstance. And and that happens in this show, right? This just happens to be a particular 
a more dr- dramatic one, but although Sandy was pretty dramatic too. So, but it also makes me think about in general, what you're saying is when I was growing up, I felt like all the kids played together and they all walked to school together, even in, in our area. So I think that even people who don't live in cities kind of can relate to this because I don't really feel like we know our neighbors that well either. It's this very strange cultural thing I think it's happened where we've just kind of self-isolated. And I think mm. technology's done some of this as we maybe get less intimate with our neighbors because of technology and things like that, that something as strange as like a podcast or, or, or technology also allows you to create communities that are maybe like non-traditional communities, but it's kind of a weird double-edged sword that I think technology kind of isolates us. And then at the same time, makes us more connected than ever before. And I think that the show does play on these themes a little bit. It does allow these people who are of very different generations, very different backgrounds to create a community. Mm-hmm. I mean, Selena Gomez probably would not hang out with a 70 year old <laughs> in normal circumstances. Well, we don't know. We don't know her personal life, right? So we don't know. <laughs> this leads us to episode number four, which is called The Sting which uh, of course is really, I think, just a pun on the fact that Sting is their suspect in this episode. But Thus Sting is a very famous movie, right? One of the most popular movies of all times that came out in the 70s, Paul. Although I haven't seen it, but yes. Oh, I can't believe you have never seen this. this I know, young Robert Redford. What am I waiting for? Yes, yes. I I mean, and Paul Newman, actually, even even at his age still, he's still an attractive guy. The, uh, The thing that maybe, possibly, is thematic to the show is that Thus Thing, famously, is a giant con. As you're watching the movie, everybody is conning everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't know who is betraying who and what the actual overall con is until the very last minutes. Maybe this is a very ambitious uh, hint that, that our show is going to uh, be playing a much bigger con. Uh, not sure. I think it's just a pun for, for now. But it would be mm-hmm. cool to think that maybe there is a bigger um, con going on here that maybe they're all getting played in some way. We're finding out that all of the characters we meet have a different version of their life than they're presenting to their neighbors, where they're all hiding something about themselves. So definitely, at least on that level, they're not being totally upfront about who they are and why they are in the situation they're in. But there could be somebody who's playing them all, right? And that's, I think that's the more interesting uh, uh, aspect to it, potentially. Okay, so with the episode itself, as it kicks off, I recognize, did you recognize Tina Fey's voice right away as soon as they open with- I did not. And then I was disappointed in myself for not having recognized it. This time it was very pronounced. I immediately knew it was Tina Fey. You know, he called in another favor and he has her just doing voice work. But of course it turns out we do see her later. And like I mentioned, her name in the show is Cindy Canning, as opposed to Sarah Canning, who is the host mm-hmm. of Serial. And of course, she's like an, an analog here for uh, Sarah Canning. And we see an introductory voiceover about the show. But of course, it's talking about our show as well. And then we see um, the, the, the opening scene, we see Steve Martin is being haunted by <laughs> Bugs and Porky. <laughs> and we find yes. out why later in the episode. <laughs> And then he gets hurriedly called in by Oliver, right? Oliver has been, he received a threat. This is last week, right? He received the threat saying, end the podcast or I end you. Yes. And uh, someone poisoned his dog. He calls his son, which may be a bonding experience, um, opportunity for him. conveniently happens to be a veterinarian. A veterinarian. So then there's a very funny sequence <laughs> where basically Oliver states that he is pretty sure that um, the killer is staying Musical superstar Sting. The guy from U2. Are you kidding me? Sting. The police, Roxanne. Every breath you take, only one of the biggest love songs of all time. 
Who educated you? Oh, now I know. He did Sledgehammer. Oh, Peter Gabriel. Gabriel. Guys, I know who Sting is. And by the way, every breath you take is no love song. It's about a jealous stalker and surveillance, and it actually seems like it was written by a killer. <laughs> so they say, well, you know, Sting's the only viable suspect they have right now. So they have to go after, you know, they have to figure out how to approach him. The only other viable suspect is a tie-dye guy, who's someone they saw with a tie-dye hoodie, yes. who will make an appearance before the end of the episode again. So then we see that there's a, they decide to go to see Cindy Canning to uh, get advice for approaching a celebrity. How do you, how do you approach a celebrity if you want them to confess? It's an interesting, uh, you know, request. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Steve Martin's neighbor um, actually has a tangential relationship with her. I think they did some gymnastic class or something together. And we do find out here that the neighbor is still FaceTiming with Lucy, this Lucy that we heard about in the last episode. And, you know, it's interesting because Steve Martin is not in communication with Lucy, but seems to be sad about that. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll find out more about that as well. So they head out to see Cindy Canning. And there's actually a very nice episode where uh, we see the bassoonist, again, whose name is Jan. The, the gang is all in the elevator again. And uh, Jan walks in. And she makes a joke about how they all <laughs> travel together. Yes. <laughs> Selena Gomez says, we we, uh, we met in a different elevator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then she says something about like, do you do this often? And they're like, oh, mostly on weekends. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they are going to meet with Cindy Canning, which they do get that appointment. This is actually a cute, uh, awkward interaction in yes. the elevator. There is uh, lots of bassoon jokes, which I found very funny. <laughs> and I like when Selena Gomez tells him when he says that he doesn't want to make the move yet to like, you know, it's, it's, it's and she goes, goes that's right you know 70s the new 40 (laughs) 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 and then steve martin responds with saying can you be less mean (laughs) (laughs) so that whole interaction is very funny from the whole terrible elevator ride conversation all the way through to the 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 the, uh mean back and forth between them and then of course they have that very funny scene also another very good scene where they go to meet um cindy canning and uh they notice that everybody who works there kind of has a similar look (laughs) yeah they also you know this is another joke about what's happening happening with podcasting that someone just basically bought her for $30 million because, mm-hmm. you know, Joe Rogan, just his show got bought by for $50 million. The guy who left this American life to start Gimlet, like nine months later, they bought his uh, podcast uh, empire, which is like, a, he has a whole network of shows that he launched that first year. I think they paid like $80 million for it. So it's just bananas. Like people are paying tons of money for these podcasts that really don't even generate money, but, but this is just the world we live in now where any, any IP people throw tens of millions of dollars at any IP. Mm-hmm. I'm still waiting for my check, by the way, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> another thing that's very funny is when Oliver's trying to uh, tease her as to who the uh, suspect could be someone famous. And he's like dropping all these like police. Yes. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she's like not getting it. And then he's just like, stay, it's staying. <laughs> but after her kind of weird interaction, she doesn't seem to be as good at what she does as you would suspect. She actually does have an, a good piece of advice in general, I think which is to embrace the mess. And I think that's actually, you know, it's a simple little philosophy, but I think actually pretty a good philosophy, not just for them, but like maybe just for life in general. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty well done. And, you know, her tip to make a turkey. Oh, yes. And this is, this is another very stupid and funny joke that pays off, which is she basically said, I got the mayor to confess by showing up at his house on Thanksgiving 
with a fully made turkey. Like, and who's going to turn you down after you've made all that effort? And that's how she ended up getting the interview. And then he eventually confessed during that time. And she's saying, well, you know, metaphorically, <laughs> you have to find. Yes. Your... So they just Not literally. Not a literal turkey, she means. But... <laughs> they literally make a turkey. But yes, also, this reminded me of one of my favorite sitcoms is Frasier. Mm-hmm. And there is um, an episode of Frasier where Frasier and Lilith, his ex-wife, want to get his son into a private school and they are doing everything they can to impress the headmaster of the private school. And this episode takes place on Thanksgiving. So the turkey is not as out of place or out of context, <laughs> right. but they do, uh, if I recall correctly, they do show up with a turkey. So apparently this is um, a more popular device than I would have thought. <laughs> maybe maybe that's an intentional callback actually. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and then we have a very cute scene where we have a duet between Charles and, J- and Jan. Like eventually they're doing, uh, do you think I'm sexy? They're going back and forth to kind of like one yes. up each other. <laughs> yes. So the songs get sillier and sillier over time. Uh, and then of course that leads to her running upstairs very quickly. Apparently she got there pretty quickly and leaves them a note that they should uh, go on a date. I agree. She got there very quickly for someone who was across the courtyard. <laughs> yeah. Seen, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's very quick. <laughs> because he's basically saying like, oh, where did she go? She's not playing yeah. with me anymore. And then also there's a, a note. Oh, so I did have one interesting note here, which is I'd like to, and maybe some internet students have already done this. I'd like to compare her handwriting to the handwriting on the mm, other notes. Interesting. So I am curious about that. Just the fact that you have these notes being passed around. I have a feeling that at some point there's going to be some comparison of this handwriting. And I'm sure somebody out there is already doing this. So maybe we should track it down. <laughs> Then we have that conversation I kind of teased last week where you hear um, Martin Short talking about how he only hits, eats dips. Yes. <laughs> what does he say? That it's uh, it's all containers and fingers. <laughs> and <laughs> Selena Gomez is just disgusted by the whole conversation. And uh, that reminded me also about a scene that I, it was a throwaway line that I really loved from the prior episode with Nathan Lane. Martin Short, Oliver, goes to ask Nathan Lane for money and comes into the apartment. And as soon as Nathan Lane sees him, he says to his son, hide the hummus. He has a problem. (laughs) (laughs) I totally forgot about that, but yes. Yeah. (laughs) Very quick throwaway line that made me laugh. And I forgot to mention it. Yeah. (laughs) He's going to take all their hummus. (laughs) Charles and Jan go on a date. What's wrong? Give the weight to the young people. We can bear it. I just... I just find dating exhausting. It's like, what do you share? What do you not share? You know, if it works out, scary. If it doesn't work out, scary. After every date, I just want to go home and plant my face in a pillow and never go out again. Okay, wow. Mm. You need to relax, okay? Just have fun, laugh, flirt. Isn't it insulting to flirt now? Well, who the hell knows? Suddenly it's rude to tell the secretary she looks pretty in a pair of slacks. No, to that whole sentence. Compliment her purse. If it isn't on their body, you can like it. No. Again, to every word that's coming out of your mouth. I just like the whole, um, <laughs> you can't yes. flirt anymore. It's like <laughs> flirting is sexual harassment. <laughs> compliment her purse. If it's not on her body, you can, you're allowed to compliment. <laughs> After the terrible dating advice, um, they uh, finally go on that date. And it seems to be going really well at first. So Amy Ryan is, um, or Jan, is uh, unloading like a lot of her previous baggage. 
in fairness, this did seem a lot to me for our first date. Yes, but, okay. I think she is doing a little much. I agree. I think she's doing a little <laughs> too much, which still makes me think she's the number one suspect for our killer so far. But um, she uh, is she's doing a lot of work there, like getting a lot of stuff out in the open right away. And uh, but it turns into a pretty funny sequence where she is basically saying, I took these classes on body language and I love your body language. Mm -hmm. And as she, <laughs> and as she keeps like, you know, whatever she whenever she says something, he like cues into it. So it's pretty great. Yes. I like when he crosses her hand, his hands and she goes, oh, no one trusts someone who has yes. you know, crossed hands. And then he puts his hands up and she goes, hands up, very trustworthy. And he goes, <laughs> just like Jesus. No one's more trustworthy than Jesus. <laughs> but then who wants to date Jesus? You just have to worship him all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, that whole sequence is very very funny and of course it goes very bad because as soon as she turns the table and goes you know hey quid pro quo you have to give me yes. one of your stories <laughs> his body language is hilarious he like like tries to roll up into a ball basically <laughs> he's as closed off as possible and tries to change the subject as quickly as possible and of course that ends the date but it does pay off very nicely later on so meanwhile you know that the date goes badly and this like you know emboldens uh, uh charles to uh you know go to oliver's place and just say we are 100 on board with this turkey idea yes and i do love that whole sequence when they're planning to go and um you know uh, meet with sting where you know they're basically saying it's okay because turkey's a little weird because it's first thing in the morning but we'll bring coffee <laughs> yeah. too with the coffee it's okay <laughs> and then i love that the weirdest part about it is when they show up at sting's place when they put the turkey down that uh their response is oh now only now does it seem strange that we, we should have brought some yams <laughs> <laughs> like it wouldn't have been strange if they showed up with the yams <laughs> but just yeah so and their just, cover story that they're just systematically <laughs> going to make turkeys for everybody in the apartment building right? and this, he, he just happens to be the first one <laughs> oh yeah the whole thing is ridiculous but very funny <laughs> and then sting has to like get it off his chest Tim stings like finally like i killed tim kona mm -hmm. and they're like oh my goodness we, we cracked this case uh -huh. and Exactly. And another very funny scene here that Sting basically says, I told him to go kill himself because he lost me all this money. And then they're like, oh, so you murdered him. And he, and then Sting's response is, oh, he was murdered? Oh, what a relief. <laughs> He's so happy that Tim Cota was murdered because now he doesn't have to feel bad about his suicide right. anymore. <laughs> but, um, and then he writes a very bad song about it. <laughs> yes. Then finally, Charles does go back to see Jan and tells her, that about his last relationship and we find out yes. why he's being stalked by pork porky and uh and bugs in this episode that basically he dated a woman called emma they met on this trip to iceland i believe it was this made her think oh he's an actor and he's you know i met him on this uh, rustic trip so he's kind of like an outdoorsy guy so basically she had an expectation of him that wasn't the case so the relationship wasn't going great but he did fall in love with her little daughter and then on their anniversary, he takes her on like a family cruise, mm -hmm. <laughs> Lucy, Lucy being the daughter, the omelets were made for Lucy. And mm -hmm. we, we hear a little bit about Lucy, the neighbors FaceTiming with Lucy. And we also find out why he's lost touch with Lucy is because they decided amongst themselves that it would just be too heartbreaking to maintain the relationship. So he hasn't been in touch. So that is a very sad story for him. Very sad. Mm -hmm. But he does allow to basically bond with Jan over this story. So it's sweet, unless Jan's the murderer. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of uh, unburdens him and he no longer sees Bugs and Porky following him around. That is a pretty sad story. And also very bad. I mean, he, he says he's bad at dating, but 
very bad to go on your anniversary cruise with on, on a family cruise and basically have your anniversary dinner with the cartoon characters there. <laughs> Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> character breakfast yeah not the most romantic uh, <laughs> options he's making their decisions he's making there so all right now i have a question for you that okay. i do not understand and you can tell me what is up with this so selena gomez is trying to decipher the note so she can make it to the january 31st meeting yeah. with gm uh -huh. he's meeting with gm mm -hmm. and then she's like who is gm she literally writes that, I think, at one point. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then one of the books falls out mm -hmm. and she goes and, and it, I don't know why it's that specific book, but then she looks at a Wikipedia article for it. And one of the characters in the book is called Gus Montrose. So right. then she Googles Gus Montrose right. and at first finds nothing in relation to Tim Kono, but then goes Gus Montrose and jewelry and yeah. then finds a Montrose Jewelers in Manhattan. And now she's like, oh, so this is the person potentially that he's supposed to be meeting. But I don't understand unless they had some kind of shorthand that they used before, like they would use the books to write notes to each other. It's my only explanation mm -hmm. because that is quite a leap she's making to take GM to be a character in the books and then understanding to associate that to a jewel. I, I don't understand what the, 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 the logical leap she's making there are pretty extreme. And I, I don't have any insight. I also find it confusing. I mean, I guess if you have an association with the Hardy Boys, then maybe you would name your own business after a character in the book. Maybe. Yeah. Because then what a coincidence that this guy who's associated to Tim Kono also yeah, has I mean, a name. Yeah, that seems it's insane. Also strange, yes. And also that she would be able to decipher it. Like I said, unless it's possible that they used to write notes, like when they had their fake mysteries, mm -hmm. that if mm -hmm. they did use references to the books and she knew somehow what, and maybe it'll be explained in the next episode. But right now it seems like completely arbitrary that she was able to solve. Yeah, it does. I don't know. But we do have two more things that happen here. We're very close to the end of this episode. And one is that Oliver's son is there that basically come, came back and he meets yes. Charles at the time yes. and says that, you know, oh, you know, the dog's okay. Got, she got it all out and she's better. And then says, by the way, I listened to your podcast and I noticed that Mabel is yes. in the podcast with you. She used to hang around the building with these other guys. One of the guys yes. she hung out with was Tim Kono. And dun, that girl dun, dun. is bad news. The last time she was around this building, one of the other friends <laughs> yes. died too. Yes. This is all bad news. And you didn't, and they're like, what? How did we not know this? Yes. And of course her secret's out and they're definitely going to confront her about that in the next yes. episode. And the last thing we see, of course, is we see uh, her exiting the building. As we hear this in voiceover, that she's bad news, that she's walking out of the building, going somewhere possibly or probably to that meeting. Cause maybe now it's a week since the, she found the January note. So I 31st, guess it's yeah. a week later, mm -hmm. right? So she's probably on the way to the meeting at the Montrose Jewelers and she's being followed by tie-dye guy. Tie-dye guy. Yeah. So who's tie-dye guy, if you have a guess, and who left the note? All right. And are they the same person? I don't have any strong theories right now. I will say as far as, you know, stop the podcast, uh, some buildings that have a lot of notoriety take a lot of pride in their building's reputation. And I wonder if, for example, somebody on the board found out about this podcast and feels it paints the building in a bad light. And so they're threatening them to stop the podcast because they're worried about the reputation of their building. And it's actually unrelated to the whole murder story. I think that threat to the podcast is also unrelated to the uh, to to the story. My 
suspect in that regard is Nathan Lane's son. Because, because of the money? Because of the money. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think he's basically, you know, he's like protecting his dad because he knows that he'll come back for more money, basically. Okay. So th- that's my guess. That's my guess. But but uh, once again, regardless, I am certain whether it's someone, you know, could just be, you're, you're right. It could be like, you know, you're giving the, the building a bad reputation. It's hurting our prices, et cetera. Right. The, the think about this place. Is a, you know, if you, we basically make it famous for being a murder building. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> So I, I agree that, you know, maybe I'm right. It's because of the money. Maybe you're right because, but either way, I am pretty certain this is not the killer who's threatening them about the podcast. It's something else. And who's tie-dye guy? Do you have a, a suspect? God, I got nothing on tie-dye guy. What do you think? I think it's Oscar. Oscar's out and he I, is I thought stalking. that, well, of course that occurred to me, but I thought that Mabel had said Oscar was about to get out. Was he actually out at the time of the murder? That's a good question because we do see murder. She could have gotten the the date wrong or he could have gotten out a little bit earlier. Or I might be remembering it wrong as well. No, I'm pretty sure she said he was about to get out. And then she does go and see the, the father and she right. asked the father if he had seen him. So right. the assumption is that he's out now, but you're absolutely correct. The, the night of the murder, that is before all of that, right? So theoretically- Yeah, so I had been ruling him out for that reason, but otherwise, maybe he gets out early, maybe who knows what. But otherwise, yeah, I think he's a likely candidate for that. I still think it's that. I think he might've just gone out a little early and uh, you know, he might've already been around. And, um, okay. and I'm not sure if he's the murderer, but I think he was maybe right. in the building. Maybe he confronted right, right. Tim Kono or something. Uh, right. Or tried to get into his apartment to get something, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that, I'm with you. That's my guess. We open with um, Tina Fey's Cindy Canning's her narration, and we end with narration as well. And she says the next season of her podcast is going to be called "Only Murderers in the Building." Yes. And basically says these podcasters got in way over their head, and at some point they are going to be implicated in a murder. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty clear because we saw that in the op- very opening sequence, right? Was uh, we see Selena Gomez over the, over a body, right? Yeah. And I think we never technically talked about the title here, which I thought this title for a TV show was so strange before I started watching this, Only Murders in the Building. And then a couple of episodes ago, it was explained when Martin Short thinks they should open up the podcast to other murders and Steve right. Martin says, no, only murders, murders in the in building. building. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So I'm glad you brought it up now, but yeah, exactly. That's a very funny scene, by the way, where they're like, no, we, we like, we can only yes. cover murders in the building. So, yes. so you're wondering like, well, I don't know how much expansion there can be for that. <laughs> but yeah. Well, they have two sure. so far. Right. And theoretically, I mean, the, the, the show seems to be doing really well. So I can imagine if you do season two, maybe there's another murder in the building and then the gang has maybe. to get back together right yeah um plus of course or theoretically this could extend because if they be, end up becoming suspects in the murder then they need to exonerate themselves by solving it in the next season something like that true so yeah so i i'm having a lot of fun like once again i have no it's so fun i have no stakes in this i am just this is like such a breezy enjoyable watch and, I, and it goes by this thing's like 30 35 minutes long at most but i mean at it most. feels like it's 15 minutes <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It's very, very easy to watch. For sure. Oh, and I want to say also before we move on to that, I love the running gag of older people texting that's going on here with um, when uh, Oliver texts Selena Gomez and Steve Martin. I'm just all over the place with character names and actor names. So sorry for that. But um, about what's happened uh, with his dog, he says, you know, but something like they came for my family. family. Yeah. Love Oliver. (laughs) He signs it. Exactly. Yeah. My mother's gotten better at that, but she used to message me that way where she'd be like, hello, it's your mother. And I'm like, I know. Like, who else would be texting from this number? 
but she's figured it out. move on to nine perfect strangers episode six motherload what do you think this title means anything well there seem to be you know a few things going on here with mother-child relationships right if we want to take it as a not a pun because puns are usually more lighthearted, but um, <laughs> there's a lot going on here with parent-child relationships including that you know that very last scene of the episode yeah so definitely is something to do with mothers uh, the mother load also is the you know like when you're mining it's when you get to the root like you know like if you find whatever gold or something mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're kind of mining around it and then when you hit the mother load it's like you have found like the main vein that basically is feeding out these little tendrils right i did so, not know that that's interesting okay yeah so when you say you hit the mother load it means that you know it's yeah. like in other words it's as if you've been kind of like sniffing around something and oh yeah. we hit we hit the main vein right the essence of it exactly mm -hmm. so it definitely has to do with mothers but there's no doubt about it right because we have two very big mother yeah. scenes in this episode i guess everybody's mothers related scenes here tangentially but two main really big ones that we'll get into in detail. But yeah, I guess the mother load, maybe they are getting to the the root of something here. I mean, I don't think they got to it here, but maybe they're circling around it. And I guess yeah. we'll just get into the episode to talk about it. But I think it is this idea, this communication, communing with loved ones that have passed, right? So, mm -hmm. and maybe that is where they're trying to get to with this therapy, possibly. It asks some interesting philosophical questions, I guess, about would you take the chance to see them again if you know it's only because you're in a drug-induced state, I guess. And if it can, like, I mean, if you can resolve this unresolved relationship, would you take that risk, basically, right? right? All right, so the first thing we see, and by the way, do you think, do you think this is literal? I, I'm pretty sure it's not, right? Considering that what we see is we see a piece of cake about a quarter of the cake is left. It's the cake for the twins' mm -hmm. birthday that they celebrated the night before. And what's written on it says, I went first, right? Obviously, not something you would write <laughs> on Zoe's birthday cake, correct? Yeah, I was trying to figure out if I was seeing like fragments of a word that would have made sense, but I, I didn't dwell on it long enough to uh, really think about it. But it did strike me as strange, yeah. Maybe this speaks to, I mean, we get to it by the end, but it seems that Masha's haunted by somebody who has passed away also, right? And I mm -hmm. think that, I know you had texted me and you're like, I don't know if we're supposed to take that literally. I think at this point, given what we saw in this episode, I think we are supposed to take that literally. Okay. And, uh, and then that's that <clears throat> idea of I went first, which is interesting too, because once again, you would not put that on Zoe's cake because right. you can imagine that that would be very, very triggering yes. for a twin, right? So, yes. and then she eats a piece of cake and apparently find out later on that she does not eat sugar. God forbid Masha eat any sugar. Which is um, not surprising at all, given yeah. this person's build and pallor also. I mean, yeah. like get some sun lady, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they definitely, I think they definitely make her paler than she's, and, and this is, accurate to the book, by the way, her accent is, and once again, I've been reading the book, have not finished it yet, though intentionally, I'm trying to go in parallel, even though mm -hmm. they're stories, <laughs> there's not that much, Completely they're, they're, they're not yeah. really <laughs> unifying it anyway. Yeah. In the book, she is very pale. She does not go out in the sun, maybe because it's like, you know, not good for her skin. The thing, the weird thing with the accent is that she basically has an Australian accent because it's in Australia. Uh, even though she went to Australia as an adult, she has an Australian accent, which sometimes when she gets excited, the Russian part of it kind of bleeds out. This sounds 
like she's just has a a, a bad <laughs> Russian yeah, accent. Right? I agree with you. And as I said at the beginning, like I'm tone deaf. And if it sounds bad to me, it's pretty bad. And she has someone, by the way, because she does voices all the time in her. And obviously she has an Australian accent. She hides it from most of her roles. So um, she has someone she works with with all of her roles. And I could imagine this is one of those things that is almost like too studied. I could imagine like she has, this is what like an actual Russian speaker who's been in the country for 20 years would sound mm -hmm. like or something. And it just ends up sounding like she's doing a bad Russian accent because it doesn't really yeah. sound like, doesn't sound like she yeah. slips into it occasionally. Right. Sound like a really authentic Russian accent. It's probably maybe an accurate blended accent, but it just sounds like someone trying to do a Russian accent. I agree. It was a bad choice, I think. I don't think it's just amateurish. She is the type of actress based on her reputation who like overanalyzes everything she does. So it's yeah, uh -huh. it seems like it's too thought out rather than not thought out enough, right? So yeah, I mean, I wonder if people just didn't want to offend her by telling her it didn't sound good. But yeah, <laughs> well, she's the producer, right? So probably exactly. no one wanted to tell her anything. They're like, right, you sure you want to do that? Answer? <laughs> They're around at the end of the day, like, let's let's draw straws. Who's going to tell her? <laughs> exactly. In, in a way, it's kind of like a, an analog to what's happening in the show, right? <laughs> it's like no the Masha. End, oh, crap! Are you kidding me? No one ever told her. <laughs> exactly. It's like no one told Masha that to, to stop. We're stuck now. Drugging everybody <laughs> there was no delilah on set yeah so then we we uh we see that sequence where she you know eats sugar and then we find out later on uh that she doesn't eat sugar and that this is kind of a moment of weakness there for her right so we now we see everybody starts having hallucinations basically in this episode um if not now then later because they all get a double dose later on in the episode so yeah so we hear paul miniature yes. paul is singing money makes the world go round yes from Cabaret, and I've seen Cabaret, and I had not remembered that that song is from, from there, but- I, I have know. not seen Cabaret, because as we've discussed, I'm not a musical theater person, so I've seen very little. I would um, recommend, by the way, I had been recommended, this is like when I was doing film studies, I was recommended Cabaret, and I was like, nah, not interested, it's a musical, not interested. And I would recommend Cabaret. Cabaret is one of those musicals that is, and this is the movie I'm talking about. So I don't know how the Broadway show is. It's probably more musical theater, but Cabaret is one of those shows that it's a drama and then it has musical um, notes in it. Mm -hmm. But it's, a, it's about, it takes place in uh, Austria during the rise of Nazism. And uh -huh. it is really interesting because this Cabaret show basically starts off, it's a totally hedonistic you know, it's very sexually liberated and stuff. And musical segments in the cabaret, which is most of them, are all about, you know, that kind of like uh, this kind of bohemian lifestyle in uh, Austria. And then as those segments continue throughout the movie, they start getting darker. And then you start to see that, that the musical, the jokes they're doing and stuff are are becoming anti-Semitic and I won't <laughs> spoil it. I actually watch the movie, which I recommend highly. The, uh, the final musical number and the final shot of the movie is like chills you to your to your core it's like mm. the, it's like visually representing that basically like that the the nazis have like one basically mm -hmm. one, you know, the souls of the people and it's really really great i really highly recommend mm. it so so uh we see miniature paul and we find out a few things we find out that he conned her out of one hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars, which honestly is yes, not perhaps. as much money as i was thinking it's only being revealed now that it wasn't about the money it was about something bigger and like i said or like i mentioned uh, in the 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 book that uh, it's very similar right she doesn't tell us the exact number but she basically says that she had sent them all this money and then he disappeared and she didn't even care about the money as a matter of fact in the book, there are other women that she meets 
that were also, you know, conned by him. And mm-hmm. she, and these women like lost everything, like lost their entire 401k right. or something. Yeah. So she actually gives them money to like help them out because she's pretty wealthy. Like, you know, she mm-hmm. was right. a best-selling author um, and not like a best-selling author nowadays sells like a hundred thousand books. Unfortunately, that's the kind of sales that you see now. She's like, you know, someone who like wrote something like Twilight. So she's like a multimillionaire. Yeah. So this was not a big um, expense for her. It was more about how humiliated she felt by the whole thing. Yes. Uh, and then, but then in the middle of this uh, sequence being, you know, taunted by this miniature Paul, she uh, flushes him down the toilet. <laughs> yes. So I guess metaphorically and maybe potentially uh, that's just something cathartic for her. We'll have to see if it sticks. Mm-hmm. Then we see, I have very mixed feelings about this scene because parts of it are very good and parts of it are very strange. We see Masha is in Lara's bedroom. <laughs> yeah, this woman has no boundaries. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there's a lot of weirdness here. First of all, we are inside of Lars's dream of being bullied for being gay. And then when he wakes up, Masha's there and apparently is triggering this dream. Yeah, like it reminded me of like some kind of weird version of lucid dreaming, right? Yeah. Where you are supposed to be able to control your own dreams, but she's controlling his dreams. Yeah, very, very strange. Like, I'm not sure yeah. how this works. But yeah. so so this is where I'm kind of like on the fence as to like whether I like this scene or not. But then I do like the interaction. I do like how, I mean, it's maternal, but also a little sexual that she is with him. But then also... I like where she's talking to him about you are someone who has torn things down. You went after bullies as a journalist. And now have you ever made anything? Have you ever built anything? Have you ever Mm -hmm. nurtured anything? And I did like that. I did like their dialogue, even Mm -hmm. though it was was so contrived that she was there and controlling his dreams. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I have very mixed feelings about this this scene, but I, I did like it overall. And interesting as a plot point, right? That she gives him a phone. Yeah, that the camera works on, but nothing else so that right. he can record what's going on. Uh, oh, and I just another book reference here, by the way, he goes after bullies in this show uh, because he was bullied. And that's kind of his motivating factor in the book. He is a divorce lawyer and he is someone who basically goes after rich men who have injured their wives physically or emotionally oh, okay. and, uh, because his father was a bully to him, probably because at some point early on, he sussed out that he was gay, possibly. That's yes. his implication anyway. And he blames himself for breaking up his family, even in the book, yes. it was similar. And uh, and his mother was loyal to him, but like basically his mother was ruined. Like her life was, you know, mm-hmm. she basically emotionally ruined by yes. what his dad did to her and left her. So yes. he's basically become a divorce lawyer to go after these bad men, basically. Yeah. So uh, even though they're very different, uh, their, their biographies are very different, kind of their motivations are similar between the two characters. So anyway, I just wanted to call that up. And um, a real thing that happens, right? I think a lot of fathers struggle, or at least, I mean, I think times are changing, but of our generation, you know, a lot of fathers struggle with that. Yeah. And you can imagine this is like, you know, an uh, Irish immigrant or Irish, yes. maybe maybe from Ireland originally, because he still has an accent. The actor as well still has an accent because I think he's still, I mean, I think he lives there. The But yeah, you can imagine like a Catholic Irish, um, yeah, you know, family, exactly. like living in the, you know, in some kind of rural town. It's not yeah. going to be a- Welcome. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And then they show up at breakfast and Masha says, okay, now you all know you've all drunk the Kool-Aid. This is literally what Tony says later on that they've all drunk the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And they are basically given the option to say, okay, you all know you're being dosed. If you want to, you can double up. Here's another dose, everybody. Yeah. 
And they all do it, right? They all do it. Isn't that correct? Yeah, although I question it, given the next scene that happens with Carmel, I was wondering, had she not taken it and I missed it? But yeah, that was my impression. They all took it. I have the same question. I didn't think about it the first time I saw the episode. I assumed they all took it. But I agree that uh, I just basically scrubbed through the episode a second time to like take some notes. And uh, I did make me wonder the same thing. I'm like, did she not take it? Or maybe, you know, like Francis uh, susses out later that maybe it's just not working for her the same way. You know, I think that's open to interpretation. And you're right. The very next scene is Masha says, Carmel, I need to talk to you, right? So she goes and uh, Carmel says, I'm on psychotropics. And, uh, you know, I I worry that these uh, hallucinogens are messing with my head. Yeah. And they say, no, it's okay. We've actually been taking a blood test. So we we know everything's okay. So that's that's interesting there. (laughs) Taking all that blood all the time. And then we find out something very strange. Once again, so much melodrama they're putting into this thing. Carmel's husband had an affair with Uh Masha. And yeah. that it was the first affair he had. And somehow this unlocked his mind that, you know, this is basically after Masha, he just started to have more affairs with more women. So it's very, very strange. I am not buying this. Okay. Like no. I have not seen Carmel's husband. I don't know what his type is. I mean, I guess if a guy wanted to go so- for someone the opposite of who they have, that could be Carmel and Masha, but it just doesn't seem believable to me that the same guy that would be attracted to and marry Carmel would also decide to cheat with Masha. I mean, maybe it just did not seem believable to me. It's all very strange. First of all, like Carmel openly states that she was very different than she was before. They have, you know, this actress is wearing, um, you know, a, a crazy, <laughs> you know, crazy wig. And, uh, and like the book, by the way, is described where she has completely unkempt eyebrows and stuff like that, which she does in the, the show as well. Mm-hmm. So they kind of describe her the same way. She's kind of unkempt, kind of like the overstressed stay-at-home mom, let's say. So she probably let herself go. But anyway, it's the whole thing. It seems very strange that Masha had somehow supposedly given him the green light to, uh, to basically seek someone else out, which doesn't make any sense because I mean, I think the whole thing's so contrived because, you know, when you see Masha, the way she's with her, she goes like, I knew who you were. I wanted you to come here because I wanted to fix you. I never hurt you. Like she's trying to go back into that maternal mode. And I really do feel that, you know, at least in those scenes that the actors have had together, these few scenes they've had together, that she does have a real empathy for Carmel. So it doesn't even make sense that maybe she would hook up with a married guy. She even says that, right? She wanted guys who were yeah. married so that she wouldn't have any kind of you need to worry about them emotionally. But even if that's the case, it's just so weird. And uh, and at least Carmel, and th- this will be one of the very next scenes we see, when she's being interviewed by um, Lars later, she even says, I don't really know if I believe that this was the trigger, you know, that yeah. Masha made him cheat on me. He obviously wanted to do this anyway. Right. So yeah. at least I think that's a more honest assessment of what's going on. It's the thing I don't like about this show. And it's not in the book, like I mentioned before, that this need to create some kind of who's the stalker, who's going to kill Masha, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It create this artificial threat that somehow keep us engaged, which I don't think yeah. the show really needs. Every time I complain about these really contrived scenes, it just bears itself out when I read read that they're not in the book (laughs) and Mm -hmm. the whole subplots that make no sense. And like, I'm trying to reason out like, well, how would this even make sense? Well, guess what? They're not in the book. (laughs) So that's why the the writers have not really thought about how they would make sense because they just added them (laughs) after the fact. So, So yeah, but Masha is seeing 
uh, her as the shooter, right? So she sees uh, in these flashbacks that we've seen multiple times now, we just see the eyes with the face obscured, but I'm pretty sure that Masha in her memory either actually saw Carmel or thinks she saw Carmel. So she does suspect that Carmel might mm -hmm. be the stalker. Mm -hmm. uh, and she does, I think, honestly, think that Carmel might be potentially going to hurt her, right? And uh, right. Car Carmel seems to be worried about that herself. <laughs> so <laughs> We see that Delilah was the one who caught her eating the cake the night before. And by the way, this is a complete aside, but having worked in like, I think orthorexic is the word for it, where people just have these food restrictions that are not healthy. Um, having worked in an orthorexic workplace, more or less, <laughs> I, I can really relate here because I have seen people react in shock because somebody ate a single Chips Ahoy. <laughs> <laughs> and the defense being, I only ate half. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I think, I don't know. We know each other on a personal level. You know, I am not one for a restrictive diet. So to me, like when these things happen, it really resonates that like, yeah, some people really like a lot of control over what goes into their body. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a whole culture built around it, honestly. It really so. is. Yeah, it really, truly is. And I, I mean, it, it's always people that it, from my jaded point of view, you know, I wouldn't kill you to have a cookie. It, when Delilah confronts her about seeing her eat the cake, um, Masha says that she was trying to reconnect with the little girl inside of her. And we think, because we saw these yes. flashbacks, when yes. she had her death, um, at, you know, when she was near death earlier and she had those flashbacks, we see a, a little girl on a swing, et cetera. And uh, I always, and I, I, I think we're supposed to assume as the audience, yes. like Masha reconnecting with some aspect of yes. herself, but it looks like maybe potentially they had lost a daughter either, I guess, back in Russia or after they moved. Yes. So yeah. And I guess we'll find out more about that coming up. So then uh, we do have Tony and Francis having an excellent scene together. I really did like this. So good. So good. The whole thing is just really well done. I liked, you know, him opening up to her. I liked her saying out loud, oh, oh my God. He's, he's moving in. He's yeah. going in. He's going in. And he's like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is very funny. And then when they finally kiss, it's very sweet. Uh, and I will say, I think this whole episode had that tone of people who are like, you know, kind of high. <laughs> that yes. there are upsides and downsides to that. And I think this episode did a good job of bringing all of that in, kind of like happy drunk, angry drunk, you know, and how it can turn on a dime. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, this was really beautifully done, I felt. He's basically saying that he had thought about suicide, mm -hmm. you know, when he lost his family, when he lost his- Yeah, his career. His career. He really has literally drunk the Kool-Aid. He's like talking about how Masha gave her so much including uh, Francis. She doesn't, you know, he, he definitely includes, you know, the, this thing that's building between him and Francis as part of this. And he says that, you know, what I thought about today when I woke up this morning, I thought about painting my house and getting a dog and mm -hmm. definitely asked, ha taking you out to dinner. And yes. that was a great, great scene. And she said, she even says, right. Like if I ever yes. write romance again, I'll definitely get to steal that. <laughs> so that's a good, good quip. Yeah. That's a good one. As and, a total aside, I did wonder if the depression could be like CTE related since he was a football player. But oh, yeah. This is just in my own head. <laughs> you know, I'm in my own personal perspective. I'm very like a CTE crusader and very anti-football. So, <laughs> I know, I know. so there was that part of me. But um, also, I just love that we are seeing this kind of romance between middle-aged people, which like yes. maybe it's just the type of thing, the media that I consume. 
but uh, there's not enough of that. Like those moments of romance between middle-aged people that are like just as lovely and exciting and passionate as they are when they're between 20 year olds. And, and as a middle-aged person myself, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so this, the next scene is another, continues this theme of this being a very, very uneven scene uh, episode, which still does have its solid points. But this scene, which is where Carmel and Lars, are, or Lars is interviewing yeah. Carmel, this is another bad scene. You know, there's parts of it that are okay. You know, Lars and Carmel opening up to each other. Okay, great. I like that part. Um, you know, she talked about how, you know, we danced last night, but then she's like, they saw their son and I'm afraid I'm going to see my ex because I attacked my ex with like a fork and I'm afraid Lars, what if I see you as my husband and Lars is like, yeah. oh, that won't happen. And I'm like, once again, put in these thriller elements, which I don't know why. And it just uh, irritates me. <laughs> That's my- well, she's the one that put the fork in the table before, right? Yes. So she really should not have forks is the thing. Plastic utensils from now (laughs) on, everybody. Yeah. And she probably wouldn't complain about it either. Actually, all these LSD tripping people should probably be (laughs) taking plastic utensils. Yeah. I mean, it was weird, right? That the only rule that she gave was like, don't go near the water and have a buddy system. Like I've seen like 3000 different places that someone could kill themselves on these grounds if they wanted to uh, accidentally. Yeah. And I forgot to call that out that if everybody took their second dose, they were supposed to not go near water. And that leads to a funny scene later on, by the way. Yeah. And uh, and not go climbing anywhere because they're afraid of all fall, obviously. <laughs> or just walk off the off of a cliff. You can, you can fly. That's or what like I'm that. saying. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, it just seemed very loosey goosey. Um, and you can see also in this episode, they're not great with the whole buddy system thing. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, I don't know. Like that. I mean, I can't imagine the release for staying at this retreat. Like, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, is this also the only time that we saw Lars actually filming anybody? This is the only time we've seen him so far. So I that assume. That seems strange too to me. Like, wouldn't you, if you were an investigative journalist and now it's essentially sanctioned that you can record stuff, wouldn't you be going nuts doing it? Pretty certain, this is my guess, that we're going to see a lot more recording in the next episode because for this episode specifically, they're buddied up, right? So they are, um, which is something that is just, hap- it's just happening in the book at, at this moment when they're buddying yeah. up very late in the book also. But yeah, I think because she's his buddy at this moment, I think that obviously that's the low hanging fruit. So this is pretty bad scene, by the way. And then we get a terrible scene, which is Jessica's nose falling off. Oh what my is- God. I mean, See, this is why I'm thinking there's more going on with this couple, because why is this all they're getting otherwise? They get nothing. They get nothing here. I, I literally wrote down like, what is it? Like these. This is ridiculous. These two characters have like nothing to do. And at least uh, Samara Weaving, or, or very good actress, I should say, is doing something with this Jessica character. I feel like Ben has nothing to do in this show at all. Like nothing. Yeah, like. I mean, I, again, I don't know what's going on in the book, but why not give them some drama point? Like they won the lottery and then he gambled away all the money. I don't know. Something like something deeper than this. There's nothing going on here. The only thing that pays off slightly in this episode, we start with the special effects are terrible. All all of it is terrible. The only thing that pays off at all is, uh, and the the actor plays Ben finally gets at least one funny line reading in this whole thing, which is when Masha just walks in because she can 
he just has access to all their rooms. Like she just goes yes. in there and talks to them while they're sleeping. So he, she just like wanders in because she hears her screaming. And yes. then at the end, he's like, where the hell did she come from? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is like the only funny thing yeah. he's forgot, had been allowed to say yeah. in his whole show. Everything else is just like, your nose is on your face. Your nose is on your face. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, he's this a likable guy. guy. I would like to see more, but this yeah. poor guy has nothing to do with this show. It's terrible. All right. So then we see the Marconis and the Marconis are out and about and they all see Zach. This is, uh, yes. this, this does happen in the book, but it's nowhere near as dramatic as this is. And the asthma meds side effects is also something that is brought up in the, in the book, but. And it's is, a real thing, right? That yes. actually exists. Yeah. Yeah. So. So I'm very curious. This is the, maybe the thing I want to talk the most about in this whole entire episode is because of this whole thing in the book, just to like light things out. They kind of all go collectively on these guided trips in this one room together. Almost all the dialogue, by the way, because they're like not speaking for a long part, part of the book. Almost all the dialogue we, we hear is in that one sequence when mm-hmm. they're all kind of tripping together. So, and it's kind of been interspersed throughout this entirety of this show basically they all start talking to Zach and they all basically blame themselves. He blames himself because he didn't wake up on time. The sister yeah. blames herself because she goes, I knew there was something wrong. He wasn't talking to me anymore. And that she mentions this in the show also. So she always blamed herself to be like, I, I knew something was wrong, but I wouldn't talk to him about it. Right. Right. And then the mom now is feels guilty. Now we all share the blame collectively. So we know that we all internalized some guilt, but we yeah. all blame ourselves. So in other words, since they all share in it, it like heals them. And it's the opposite here. She yeah. like, re- remembers this and it yeah. breaks her, completely breaks her. Although I do think that what I described this kind of like healing process might be the next episode based on where we leave things off here. She sees her son. They all have different interactions with him. Her interaction is him saying like, you knew the side effects mm-hmm. on the medication and you didn't say anything about it. And, and this leads her to really just freak out, right? Because she's been blaming her husband. She's been blaming everybody yeah. else. Deep down inside, she's been blaming herself this whole time. And that's where she's so angry. That's where, where this, yes. great, this anger comes from inside of her. And I wanted to mention, talk to you about this scene. And then I wanted to talk to you about Michael Shannon's reaction to it, which yes. I think is a very good scene. Her His, his yes. interactions with Masha, uh, yes. once again, I've not loved Nicole Kidman in this show, but they have a very good scene where she's trying to basically say, but hold on a second. Like when you blamed yourself, you wanted her to accept you. Yes. And he's like, I can't forgive her. Right. Yes. And it's, it's a very complicated scene. So the, those two scenes, how, how do you how, like this whole thing, this whole situation, how did you feel about all this? Well, first, okay. On a lighter note, the orthorexia theme continues here, right? Where <laughs> Right. Cause she was obsessed with putting anything in her body. Right. That's why she would read reading the label of every single yeah. thing she puts in her body. Um, right, right. So I just think this is an interesting reference to what goes on in our culture right now, because they do know so many people who are like this. And um, honestly, for me, it's a little tiresome to be around, but um, anyway, <laughs> uh, there's that second on a lighter note. I originally thought the casting for Zach was so strange. I thought he didn't really look like he'd be a member of that family, but seeing him with the mom, I see yes. they have a very similar facial structure. Yes. When they like kind of, when they go back and forth, like uh, yeah, behind they, Zoe's head, right. And you see her. Yeah. Chin. And I had not picked up on that before, but I think that was really excellent casting and that yeah. he definitely looks like he could be her son. Um, okay. So on to a deeper level. Yes. This was so painful for me to watch. And in fact, um, before this scene, I had thought like, wow, Melissa McCarthy and Bobby Cannavale are like carrying this show at this point, having seen that scene with Francis and Tony. Um, but this had me glued to the screen. The idea of as a mom feeling that culpability was so painful. And I think she conveyed it 
really well the the desperation and the the grieving and and all of it and you know in the world we live in today right like every drug has a thousand side effects you hear it in the commercials you know right. often I, it would be easy to just push that aside right and not have a conversation when you're just trying to help somebody breathe better about like and by the way if you start having some really dark thoughts you need to mention that to me right like right. you see how that something like that could practically happen so and I had the thought, like you were saying, that, okay, so now everyone understands that they feel somehow responsible for this thing that, you know, really is a, I don't want to say had a life of its own, because that seems like a bad turn of phrase, but, you know, no one is really truly responsible, but you do feel like maybe you could have prevented it. Maybe you could have said, maybe you could have done, and everyone is living with that guilt and that would bond them that you see that scene with Napoleon where he's so unforgiving of her yeah. at a time that you expect your partner to have compassion when they have felt that same pain themselves really threw me I wasn't expecting that at all and I thought it was really well done I rewatched some scenes just last night again to prepare for this conversation. But the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, that's really rough. Like he's really not cutting her any slack. The second time I watched it, I gave him, I understood his rationale a little bit more. Just the way he delivers that line where he says like, God forbid she would ever eat yeah. anything to accidentally eat like one bite of sugar. Yeah. So I can understand the resentment you have there. And he even talks about it, right? Like that seed of resentment is what breaks up marriages, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he talks about yeah, how could you imagine- Yeah, that was really nicely done. Yes, yeah. Like how, how so many couples don't recover from losing right. a child. Yeah. And, and could you imagine like you've spent your whole entire relationship with this person who you idolize, right? He like adores her. And he kind of compromised, he even says, I've compromised so many things. So he's probably like, could you imagine the places they can't go, the foods they can't eat, the things they can't do to be like this, you know, so that she can keep this like utterly pure body. And then mm -hmm. her, it's okay, you know, yeah, there's a chance of this big deal. And I think that it's not that he would not forgive anybody. It's that she stands on this principle in like in all ways. And then mm -hmm. when it's her son, mm -hmm. she's like, it's all right, you know? And I think that's what he can't stand. And, and mm -hmm. that's, that's the way I read it the second time around that there's like, it's the hypocrisy of it that he can't stand. It's okay to like have all these rules because you're a purist, but if you're mm -hmm. not a purist, then why do we have all these rules? And once again, it's that seed of resentment, right? Which I think is fulminating there. And I thought it yeah. was well done. You know, the second time around, I yeah. felt it really worked more so than even the first time I saw it, to be honest. The second time I kind of understood him a lot better. Yeah. I think I did have that takeaway. Um, so I do get that. And I, I do get that. Listen, even in everyday life without a tragedy, so many couples are constantly breeding resentment just on everyday <laughs> life, right? Like, why don't you ever, I don't know, put your dishes away? Why is there always a coffee mug but left behind, right? Like, these are right. the things that um, do grow into deeper resentments between couples when there isn't even something devastating happening. So it's so clear that, yeah, if you lost a child, and you see someone as somehow culpable in that, that's going to be huge. And here, yeah, I get what he's saying that um, what was it all for, right? right? If you're that type of person that is, right. you know, so super, super careful about everything because you pride yourself on being so healthy and so pure, how could you not have taken the extra moment to say, hey, by the way, you should know this could happen and you got to come talk to me if it does. Like, yeah, I right. do get it, but- right. At the same time, knowing what she is going through and witnessing that pain 
it just seems like you're piling on at that point as well. Oh yeah. No, I, I want to be clear yeah. that I, I'm not yeah. saying that I agree with his assessment. I yeah. just felt that the first time around, I was like, where's he coming from with this? Considering he just had all this guilt himself. And yeah. the second time around, I was like, it's I relatable. totally understand yeah. where the yeah. resentment is coming from. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. But yeah, so which just, just to say that I thought it, it's pretty well written is my, is my I agree. main takeaway. Yeah. Okay, so then Masha kind of gets the Marconis together and says, what if I could reunite you with your, you know, mm-hmm. obviously she's not trying to say this is like a, a seance or something, but she's trying to say that, you know, you can have this shared experience. And what we were talking about at the beginning of this a recap, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that you could somehow psychically heal this thing by, mm-hmm. by introducing this person yes. into, into your uh, life again. Uh, so you can have this out, you can have this conversation mm-hmm. with them and potentially theoretically uh, resolve these issues. And uh, she, she makes this a proposal to them. They seem reluctantly on board with it. Delilah, meanwhile, is not happy about this. She thinks this mm-hmm. is dangerous, right? And we find out here that this sounds to be similar to something this Connolly person who collapsed mm-hmm. earlier Apparently they were doing something similar. So maybe the Connolly family, maybe it wasn't just, you know, we, in the flashbacks, we only see the one person having this episode, but maybe it was a whole family that was there theoretically. And they were trying to do something like this, right? Reconnect mm. with somebody. And so it went too far. Right. And Delilah is basically saying, you know, Hey, we got into trouble last time. And, but Masha seems to be <laughs> pretty confident that this is going to work this time. And Delilah, I can't remember when this scene comes, but at some point there's a scene with Delilah and Yao where she's like, we got to get out of here. Yes. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. She's ta- she has this conversation with Yao earlier on and she says to Yao that the Conleys are still stalking, you know, are you know, threatening mm-hmm. her. And then Yao goes, you don't know that's the case. Right. And then here, you know, she just confronts Masha directly and says, um, you know, are you sure this is a good idea? Or, or actually she, she actually has a conversation with them earlier when they're doing tai chi together i think they're doing tai chi together and then the last time we see delilah disapproval she doesn't say anything at all right she's just watching that conversation between all of them and she just kind of walks away so you know that she's just kind of saying like this is not yes uh by the way in the book uh delilah has already bailed (laughs) she she took the lamborghini and drove to the airport she's like i'm out good for her (laughs) exactly Exactly. And it happens before. And like I said, in the, in the book, nothing really crazy, crazy has happened yet. Uh, although maybe she's smart like, enough to know. She's <laughs> like, right, on wall. I'm Literally. out of here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So we mentioned that the, there's some reference to the Connolly situation happening earlier. So there was something similar that happened and it went too far. And now it might happen again. Hopefully not. Um, and then Delilah bails in the book. And then, oh, and then of course, we're near the very, very end of the episode. We see that Masha seems very dead set on being able to heal these psychic, you know, wounds by, mm-hmm. you know, that we have with the, our, our lost loved ones. And that's when we see Masha have the same flashback mm-hmm. as a little girl, but it's not Masha as a little girl. It's another little girl and she's running behind mm-hmm. her. And then the little girl goes into an intersection, get hit. And we assume that that little girl dies. Mm-hmm. We assume it's her daughter, right? That's my assumption, of course, right? I think that is the most obvious assumption. Yeah, especially because she's trying to reconnect with someone who's passed away. And I do think, again, to to go to my general reaction to the Masha character here, I feel like it was supposed to be like, dun, dun, dun. Yes. And instead I was like, huh, okay. 
<laughs> I felt like yeah. I was supposed to gasp at the realization and I did not. Oh, I think that, yeah, I agree that there was supposed to be some kind yeah. of gasp there, which, yeah, which didn't happen, but I did feel a little something there for her at the end. But I agree anyway. with you. The song was doing a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is, I've never heard this song before, by the way, it's a wind. I, I have heard the original, that's the windmills of your mind, which is the theme song a Steve McQueen movie called The Getaway from 19, early 70s. But this is a cover, which I think happened really within a year of it coming out or so. And it's by Dusty Springfield. So uh, I do always like when a show, I'm giving it extra bonus points because I always like when a show introduces me to a new song. So I was happy to hear this. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> so, so I mean, I, I mean, I think we've kind of uh, said it all, but do you have any ideas where things are going to go? Well, you know, I still don't really care what's going on with Masha. So I guess I haven't even really invested the time to think about where things are going to go because I don't care. So that's where I am. How about you? But yet you're liking the show more than I am. So <laughs> I am. And, you know, I will say, like, I think it was a very interesting question presented, which we've talked about a couple of times now about, like, what would you risk to have that feeling of being with someone you love so much again, which is something like, for me, I'm able to put myself in that position pretty easily, having lost my dad when I was 13 years old. And I think like, God, like to really have that feeling of hugging him again, like I'd probably do a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and I think that's some of the strongest stuff that you see in, in the show. As a matter of fact, I mean, this is what's so strange about this is that we've added this melodrama to the show about all of these other things that are happening. I feel like the scenes where the Masha character works the best, and I don't know, and maybe this is just an appetite that people don't have for this type of TV. When she's interacting with the other characters, I like those scenes. So what I don't care about is this melodrama that they're trying to sell, right? I agree, yeah. And so what's so strange about it is that almost if Masha was more of an enigma, if she was someone who was like, is she trying to do good? Is she trying to do bad? you know, what's her overall scheme, but we didn't know it would be more interesting to just have these yeah. scenes where she interacts with these characters and cut out all of the, who's stalking her, who's doing this, I who's agree. Doing that, who did she sleep with? Like, none of that is interesting. I agree. It's almost like if you just cut out all of that stuff, which once again, it's not even part of the original text, it would be right. more interesting. And by the way, if we had only been interested in her as this kind of like maternal you know almost messiah figure right if um we had that's the only uh relationship we had with her up until this point and then all of a sudden we find out no she's vested in this i think that that emotional uh hit would have been stronger than the fact that she's like whatever she's trying to brainwash people she's a yes. maniac she's sleeping with everybody she slept with one of the guest husbands like you know like all if you removed all that stuff she's a more interesting character basically and it's just very strange. yeah maybe they, they were trying this. to give nicole kidman more to do i, I don't know but I don't yeah know. i mean she's definitely a big character in the book by the way very different okay um, her the, the plot is very different but she is a big part of the book but like i said you it's almost like let she's would definitely be better with like less is more she should be like a cult leader type character where yeah you can read them as bad or as much of a savior as you want to, because once again, with a cult leader, it's all up to your interpretation as yeah. to, like I said, like knowing that she doesn't eat sugar, knowing that she 
you know, sleeps around knowing that she cheated with married guys. None of this makes her more mysterious or interesting in any way. <laughs> so right. I'm not sure what they're going for. Agree. But anyway, I'm pot committed now, six episodes, and I got to see it to the end, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind seeing it to the end. Like you said, I, I am enjoying it. So I just, oh, you know, there are those moments that make me roll my eyes, but I am enjoying it. Yeah. And even though there's like terrible scenes from episode to episode, I do like, I do like certain characters. I'm vested in certain characters enough. Yes, to, to agree. Through. And with only two episodes to, to go, I do not think that the Jessica and Ben storyline is going to get anywhere, unfortunately. But It's a shame because I like those characters. I would want to know more, but oh well. I just saw on HBO Max, it's available. Also came out in theaters, although it completely flopped. It's the new movie by James Wan. So mm-hmm. James Wan has been massively successful, by the way. James Wan started off, he made the first Saw movie him and Lee Wanell, who wrote it. And uh, they you know, produced all those Saw movies. And then after a pretty uneven career, he made the Conjuring movies. He made one of the Fast mm. and Furious movies. Like I think it's the most, mm-hmm. the most successful one of the Fast and Furious movies. And he made um, uh, the Aquaman movie just recently too. So he's you know, ma- making these mega, mega blockbusters. So he, by his standards, has made a small movie called Malignant. It's available. On yes, I got an email about that. Okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so this is a horror movie. It's relatively small budget. I mean, although it's pretty amazing. Lee Winnell, who works with James Wan often, uh, just made The Invisible Man. Have you seen The Invisible Man? With... Yeah, the one with Elizabeth Moss. Yes. Loved it. So good. Yeah. So Lee Winnell made this very low budget Invisible Man. I think he made it for less than $10 million. And I found it terrific. I thought it was like, you know, it's about gaslighting. I thought that there was so much suspense. And I thought like that the opening sequence in The Invisible Man, those first 10 minutes or so are like a masterclass in suspense. Mm -hmm. There's like nothing happening and you are on the edge of your seat the entire time. Like some of the best filmmaking I've seen. And the same filmmaker, Lee Winnell, um, like I said, who actually wrote the Saw movies, James Wan produced them and directed the first one that, uh, so they kind of come up together. They kind of help each other out throughout their careers. He's still working in small budget. He, before he made Invisible Man, which is the biggest thing he's made, he made a movie called, called Upgrade, which was like an action horror movie. And it's excellent. It's really, mm-hmm. really great. And I, and once again, made on a tiny, tiny little budget. I think it even cheaper than The Invisible Man. I think he made it for like $5 million, $3 million maybe. And it's really great. And so anybody should track that down, check Upgrade. It's very violent, by the way. So mm-hmm. if you don't like a lot of gory violence, don't watch Upgrade. But if you want to, it's a lot of fun. It's, a lot, it's very thrilling and scary. It's very well done. And uh, anyway, he's making these movies on these little budgets. I feel like James Wan is trying to get back to his roots and he makes this smaller movie compared to Aquaman. It's a smaller movie. Um, he makes this movie called Malignant. And this movie, I almost want to recommend it because it is so unbelievably batshit crazy. I cannot describe. It is like a horror movie with every kind of horror in it. It's got a serial killer. It's got a haunted house. It's got science fiction. It's got possession. It's got body transformations. It's got uh, kung fu. It's it's an action movie. It's it is bananas. And it sounds like just too much. It's okay. too much. It's so <laughs> overstuffed. But I recommend people like if you have the tolerance for it, and it's very grisly by the way too. But if you have the tolerance for it, it is so bananas, so utterly bananas that I. Uh, you know, I almost recommend it just for that. <laughs> Although it's not successful at it. He is putting every single idea he can into one movie and it is bonkers. The end of this movie 
if you can make it to the end of this movie, the last 20 minutes of this movie are so preposterous and bananas that you're like, I cannot believe someone like put this into a movie. It's, it's insanity. It's utter. Insanity. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's worth watching just to see something absolutely completely different, but it's not good. <laughs> so I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not clear, sure. Not <laughs> yeah. So I just want to be clear that if you're looking for something that's absolutely crazy. And by the way, I am pretty sure the audience reaction has been pretty bad on this. I feel like this is something that mainstream audiences are going to not like at all, but like, it's going to definitely have its cult because it has everything in there and it's intentional. That's the one thing I want to be clear about. It's not like this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's intentionally making like a movie that he's like saying like, what if I could put like 10 different movies into one movie and just mix them all together. So he's doing everything intentionally. I don't think it works, (laughs) but it is definitely like, it's literally one of those things where you're like, how did anyone ever make this movie? And you know what? If James Wan hadn't just made $2 billion movies back to back, there's no way this movie would ever be made. <laughs> this is a blank check movie for him, for sure. So um, it's it's bonkers. But anyway, uh, it's not doing well at the box office, but I think a lot of people are watching it on cable. So, hey, you can watch it for free if you have HBO. If you want to see something absolutely bonkers, check it out. <laughs> okay. I actually do have a quick recommendation based on... Our conversation and not a typical type of recommendation for me at all. But because we were talking about the music and Nine Perfect Strangers and the song that was used last week, it reminded me of how much I loved a few weeks ago over the final credits. They used No More I Love You's by Annie Lennox. Um, And Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say on the subject of covers and Nine Perfect Strangers covers, it reminded me of the Medusa album, which is an album of Annie Lennox covers that is absolutely amazing. I actually was not really an Annie Lennox fan before that album, but she's got a lot of really great covers on there, including um, Train in Vain by The Clash. I can't even remember. Um, A Bob Marley song, I think Waiting in Vain and Train in Vain are both covers that are on there. Um, And she just has such a beautiful voice and lends such a haunting quality to some of these songs that uh, it really is an album that I used to listen to just time and time again because it's so beautiful. I did, you know what? I did not realize that Medusa, which I know was a pretty popular record when it came out, I did not realize this was mm-hmm. all covers. Take Me to the River, mm-hmm. A Waiter Shade of Pale. Interesting. A Waiter Shade of Pale. That, that would could That's be a very haunting song on its own. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Interesting. All right. So I will talk to you soon. Great. Looking forward to it. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Mm-hmm.